Square Feet Tours, enriching your journey. Welcome to the Square Feet Tours walking tour of the town of Seaside, Florida, founded by Robert and Daryl Davis, with a master plan designed by Andres Duwani and Elizabeth Plater Zyberg. I am Bob Smith, and I will be your host and your guide. Our walking tour begins and ends at the Seaside Post Office, located on Highway 30A, behind the amphitheater in the Seaside Central Square. But before we begin the walking tour, I'll give you some information on how to use this podcast and on the history of the town. So find a comfortable place to sit and relax for the next 15 minutes as we review the story of the creation of Seaside. If you are already in the central square of Seaside, you may want to visit Amavita Coffee and Tea, located just across Highway 30A and adjacent to Pickles Beachside Grill, for something to drink before we begin walking. You will find a few tables and chairs behind the post office overlooking the Seaside Amphitheater in the central square. The tables and chairs here, along with the seats that are part of the amphitheater, provide a great view of the town. If you are staying in a cottage at Seaside and are not yet in the central square, I will let you know when you should start making your way toward the post office to begin the walking tour. Our tour will take approximately 75 minutes. We will walk about a mile and a half during the tour. So even though the terrain is relatively flat and easy to navigate, you may want to make sure that you are wearing comfortable shoes. Seaside is a real town, filled with homeowners and their guests. The homes in Seaside are private homes, so please be respectful of the homeowners and their guests as you tour the town. In addition, the Seaside Beach Pavilions are private structures and can only be visited if you are a registered guest of Seaside. During the walking tour, remember to pay close attention as you walk along Highway 30A and the streets of Seaside. Although drivers generally slow down as they pass through Seaside, the highway and internal roads can be dangerous, so please be careful. While I've tried to synchronize the movement through the town with the audio of the tour, you can always pause the podcast if you want to spend more time in a certain area, or if you want to take a break, or if you haven't quite made it to the next tour point. I'll provide location milestones throughout the tour to make sure that you and I are in the same place, and I'll let you know when it's time to move on to the next location. And now, let's begin with the story of the creation of Seaside. The story of Seaside begins in 1899 with the opening of Louis Pizzet's Dry Goods Company in Birmingham, Alabama. This simple dry goods store would grow to become Pizzet's Department Store, a Birmingham institution during most of the 20th century. Louis' son-in-law, J.S. Smolian, helped run the store with Louis and was always dreaming of ways to improve the store and the experience for his customers and his employees. In 1945, 
Another Alabama company, Avondale Mills, purchased 185 acres of land on the coast of Florida in Walton County. The property sits on Lake Powell, a coastal dune lake. Coastal dune lakes are relatively rare geological features that can only be found along the coasts of Oregon, South Carolina, and northwest Florida in the United States. The land purchased by Avondale had been the summer estate of the Hicks family and was partially developed with a main house and a few guest cottages. Avondale named the property Camp Helen and opened it as a summer retreat for its employees. Every year, employees of Avondale anxiously awaited the results of the company lottery to see if their family had been selected to visit the camp. Transportation to the camp was provided by the company and all recreational activities and lodging were free. Avondale operated Camp Helen as an employee retreat until 1987. In 1996, Camp Helen joined the Florida State Park System and can be visited today. J.S. Smolian loved the idea of providing a summer camp for his employees. With Camp Helen as a template, in 1946, he purchased 80 acres of deserted scrubland with 2,300 feet of beachfront on the Florida coast, not far from Camp Helen. The purchase price was about $100 per acre, or about $1,300 per acre in today's money, adjusted for inflation. Although Smolian never realized his dream of turning the land along the coast into an employee retreat, he dutifully cleared the property each year and would spend his summers along the coast with his family, including his grandson, Robert Davis. As a child, Robert Davis would build sandcastles on the beach adjacent to the property that his grandfather owned, the beach that would later become the crowning jewel of Seaside. Davis would eventually leave Alabama to earn a history degree from Antioch College in Ohio, and then to continue his education at Harvard, where he would earn a master's degree in business administration. His interest in building and development would lead Davis to a position at the Housing Corporation for America. While there, Davis would coordinate federal housing programs, including a 700-unit complex in Washington, D.C. Eventually, he found himself in Miami, Florida, as a developer. Davis's first project, a nine-unit townhouse development called Serendipity, was launched in Coconut Grove in 1973. It was both a critical and financial success. Spurred by the success of Serendipity, in 1976, he created another small townhouse development in Coconut Grove that he named Apogee. Apogee was a critical success, winning numerous design awards, but came into the market during a housing downturn. The highly leveraged project did end up proving to be financially successful for the banks that funded the development, but had little impact on Davis's finances. In the haste to sell the townhomes in a buyer's market, the profitability for the lenders was maintained at the expense of the profitability for the developer. The lesson of Apogee was clear to Davis. Developers are successful when a project has very little debt and is built in small increments to minimize risk. In 1978, 
Ownership of the land that J.S. Smullyan purchased along the Florida coast was passed to his grandson, Robert Davis. While contemplating his options after inheriting the land, Davis would recall the summers he spent with his family on the beach. When I closed my eyes and let my mind wander, I could almost feel the sea breezes evaporating the moisture on my skin. I could recall the special pleasure of relaxing on a porch rocker after a shower at the end of a day on the beach, Davis said. He wanted to make sure that the land that held the dreams of his grandfather was developed appropriately. How could he develop the parcel in a way that would allow the next generation, and the generations after, to experience the same feelings of a carefree summer beach town that were such an important memory? What made some coastal towns so much more meaningful and memorable than others? Was it the architecture, the layout of the streets? To answer these questions, he and the woman who would become his wife, Darrell, set out on a two-year driving tour of the small towns of the South. In their 1975 red Pontiac convertible, they visited small seaside towns as well as tiny inland towns. We'd see an interesting house, knock on the door, and almost always be invited in, Davis said. The pair would keep records of their impressions, make notes of what they saw, and fill their memories with the kind of slow, neighborly-centered towns that seemed to be fading into history. They knew that this was the kind of town that they wanted to build on his grandfather's land. At this point, you should begin to make your way toward the seaside center square. By design, no point in seaside is more than a five-minute walk from the seaside post office in the seaside center square. When you arrive at the center square, find a place to rest for a few minutes where you can look out over the amphitheater lawn as I continue with the story of the town's creation. While Robert and Darrell were touring the south in their Pontiac land yacht, two young architects were making a name for themselves in Miami. Andres Duani studied at Princeton University and the School of Fine Arts in Paris and earned a master's degree in architecture from Yale. His grandfather developed the town of Vista Alegre, near Santiago de Cuba in 1904. His father would return to the same site, near Santiago de Cuba, in 1949, to develop the land adjacent to Vista Alegre into the town of Terrazas a development that is very much in the mold of Levittown, although the houses at Terrazas are flat-roofed and made from poured concrete. As a developer, Duane's father could not understand why American development in the 70s seemed to lean towards large early investments of infrastructure. Why not do it the old way, he would ask. With two generations of developers in his family, Dewani's decision to explore a career in design by becoming an architect is hardly surprising. Elizabeth Plater Zyberk grew up as the daughter of an architect in Paoli, Pennsylvania. As a little girl, she would draw houses on her father's laundry shirt cardboards, and later she would spend the summers working with her dad in Philadelphia. 
With the small suburban town of Paoli as a base, she could walk most places, including a nearby station where she could catch a train for transportation to school and the city of Philadelphia. Like most children, Elizabeth assumed everyone's experience was the same, and living in a town where you walked to local merchants and could easily take public transit to visit the sites and offerings of a major city was hardly extraordinary to her. Plater Zyberg earned a bachelor's degree in architecture and urban planning from Princeton University and a master's degree in architecture from Yale. In 1977, Andres Duwani and Elizabeth Plater Zyberg, now married, joined with several other young architects to launch the firm of Architectonica in Miami. The firm produced several outstanding works during this period, most notably the Atlantis Condominium in Miami Beach. This glass-walled building includes a four-story square hole through its center, complete with a red spiral staircase and palm tree, and was a highlight of the opening credits of the 1980s television series Miami Vice. While Robert Davis was developing serendipity and apogee in Coconut Grove, and Andres Duwani and Elizabeth Plater Zyberg were busy launching Architectonica in Miami, Susan Lewin was the architecture editor of House Beautiful magazine. Susan visited Southern Florida frequently to spend time with her retired parents, and, not being much of a beach person, used her visits to scout projects for the magazine. It was during a trip to southern Florida that Robert Davis introduced himself to Susan Lewin and shared his current projects with her. She was impressed by his clean, modernist structures with lovely screened porches and ceiling fans. Back in New York during a lunch with architect Robert A.M. Stern, Susan mentioned her frequent trips to Miami to visit her parents. Stern told Susan of an interesting young architectural firm making news in Miami and urged her to visit Architectonica during her next trip to southern Florida. Lewin did as Stern suggested and was impressed with the firm's work. But more importantly, Lewin knew that Robert Davis and Architectonica were a perfect match and arranged for a meeting a few days after visiting the firm. This meeting was the foundation of the relationship that would grow between Robert Davis, Andres Duwani, and Elizabeth Plater Zyberg. Because Susan Lewin was the catalyst for their initial meeting, she has been called the fairy godmother of Seaside. And so, the three stars of Seaside were aligned. First, there was Robert Davis owner of the land, and a developer who spent two years cataloging the best features of the small towns in the South, one who learned to be cautious with debt and to be wary of moving too quickly. Then there was Andres Duwani, a Princeton and Yale-educated architect whose family had created new towns in their native Cuba and whose father had wondered why American developers simply won't do things the old way. And finally, there was Elizabeth Plater Zyberg, another Princeton and Yale-educated architect who had grown up in a small, walkable town 
where local merchants provided for your daily needs. It was this convergence of talent and personal experience that created the spark needed to turn the 80 acres of scrubland on the Gulf Coast of Florida into the town of Seaside. If you are not already comfortably seated along the amphitheater, find a seat on the amphitheater steps located behind the Seaside Post Office, where you can easily see the Seaside Lawn and the buildings surrounding the Seaside Central Square. For the purposes of the walking tour, it's important to note that you are looking north over the lawn into the town of Seaside. Here at Seaside, as you look into the town, the beach is behind you to the south. Panama City and Jacksonville are to your right in the east, and Destin and New Orleans are to your left in the west. Look out over the lawn at the central square of Seaside, and behold the town that Time magazine has called the most astonishing design achievement of its era. Almost from the beginning, Seaside has been receiving similar accolades. But the town that exists today bears little resemblance to the original plan that Robert Davis commissioned for his grandfather's land. The first plan for Seaside was developed by Miami architect Robert Altman. In Altman's plan, individual houses were based in clusters or pods. Highway 30A was ignored and cars were parked in parking lots rather than along the street. In the next version of the plan, the first plan developed by Andres Duwani and Elizabeth Plater Zyberg in early 1979, the land was divided into purpose-driven sectors, each sector having its own character that had little bearing on the character of adjacent sectors. In this plan, individual houses were situated along curvilinear paths. As the plan developed, Duwani and Plater Zyberg proposed a realignment of Highway 30A to the northern perimeter of the property, resulting in most of the land becoming beachfront. In this scheme, dated April of 1979, the retail sector is located in the isolated northeast corner of the property. Highway 30A is viewed as a detriment and is hidden behind a continuous raised mound of earth. This berm would shield the residents of the development from the noise and the traffic of the highway. All of the early plans for the 80 acres were based on the prevailing concepts of housing development that existed at the time, and were acceptable designs based on those concepts. But the designs presented didn't resonate with Robert and Darrell Davis, or with Andres Dewani and Elizabeth Plater Zyberg. They knew that something more could be done here. In the fall of 1979, European architectural theorist and urban planner Leon Cryer visited Miami and presented a lecture on a new wave of European architecture. Andres Dewani and Elizabeth Plater Zyberg attended the lecture. They were greatly impacted by the ideas presented by Cryer and started to research his theories. Could they incorporate some of Cryer's ideas into the work they were doing on a housing development along the Gulf Coast? What if they approached this project as a design for a new town 
and not just a design for a housing development. A few months after attending Cryer's lecture, Duwani and Plater Zyberg presented a new design for the 80 acres to Robert and Darrell Davis. They presented a design for the town of Seaside. The design acknowledged the presence and existing alignment of Highway 30A and embraced the highway as a lifeline through the town. In this new plan, the retail sector sits along Highway 30A and is placed in the center of the 80-acre parcel. The streets are aligned in a grid pattern, with most taking a north-south orientation, intersecting with Highway 30A and terminating at the beach. A broad avenue extends from the main center square, diagonally to the northeast corner of the town, where a swim and tennis club would be located. In every instance, streets that intersected with the property line were to be extended into the adjacent towns, even though most of those towns were not yet built. Seaside was designed from the start to be part of the fabric of the local communities, not isolated from them. The layout that was produced by Duwani and Plater Zyberg in April of 1980 formed the foundation of the master plan for the town of Seaside you see today. It's time to begin our walk through this masterpiece of town planning. Let's begin the tour by walking to Highway 30A from the amphitheater. Once you come to the highway, with the central square behind you and a glimpse of the gulf in front of you, turn left and walk eastward along Highway 30A. Pay close attention as you walk along the highway and cross the streets of Seaside. Even though traffic moves slowly through Seaside, be mindful that you are walking along busy streets. You will cross two streets the roadway that circles Center Square and Quincy Circle. Continue past Quincy Circle, pausing when you come to the third street, East Ruskin Street. If you have driven along most of the developed coast of Florida, you'll know that in many cases, high-rise hotels and condominium towers dominate the coastline. While the towers afford their residents unimpeded access to the sand, they effectively block the views and access to the beach from anyone or anything that happens to sit behind them. Of course, this greatly increases the value of the land on which the towers sit, but lowers the value of the land behind the towers. In addition, it creates a great chasm between residents who seem to own the shoreline and those inland who can barely see the water. Robert Davis wanted to make sure that all of the residents of Seaside felt the same connection to the beach, his family's beach, that he did as a child. He knew that this would help build a sense of community, while at the same time increase the value of the building parcels that sit further inland. The plan of Seaside consists of a series of north-south roads, each terminating with an access over the dunes to the beach. 
at each beach access point, there would be a welcome structure to announce the break in the dune and to act as a terminus of the view from any point along the street toward the shore. As you approach East Ruskin Street, look across Highway 30A toward the beach. Through the trees and the shrubs, you'll see an example of a seaside beach pavilion, the East Ruskin Street Pavilion, designed by Stuart Cohen and Anders Nerium. The design brief for the East Ruskin Street Pavilion, indeed for most of the beach pavilions at Seaside, included a changing room, a storage area, a toilet, a dune walkover, a place to sit and look at the water, and finally a stair down to the beach. Now continue walking eastward along Highway 30A and pause when you come to the next street, Savannah Street. The pavilions serve as a grand entry to the beach for everyone who lives in the town. The idea of the pavilions grew out of the Davises' road trip. Those are a merger of what I saw in Point Clear, Alabama, where big houses had lawns sweeping down to the bay with places to sit, and in Apalachicola, which had a place where neighbors share a beach walkover, Davis said. It's a symbol for people that the beach is still theirs without building high-rises. I felt it important to build those gateways to the beach as a visible reminder to all who would buy into the community that you don't have to own a gulf front lot to be assured access to the beach. The beach pavilions have become some of the most iconic structures at Seaside and are among the most photographed architecture in South Walton County. There are nine beach pavilions at Seaside, each one unique, yet all reflecting the spirit and personality of the town. Each pavilion was designed by a different architect. When you arrive at Savannah Street, pause and look down Savannah Street and into the town of Seaside. Take note of the posts that are placed at either side of the entry onto the street. These entry pillars serve two purposes. First, they act as a gateway to the street, announcing the street name and providing a portal or sense of entry into the town. And second, they help to slow traffic speed as vehicles turn onto the street from Highway 30A. Since the pillars restrict the size of the intersection, the piers subtly remind drivers to pay attention and slow down. This type of traffic calming device has been used in towns and cities around the world, but rarely with as much style as the examples seen here at Seaside. Now turn around and face the gulf. Here you'll see another example of a Seaside beach pavilion, the Savannah Street Pavilion, by Tom Christ. Christ designed this pavilion during his year as the seaside town architect. Continue walking eastward along Highway 30A and pause when you come to the next street, Tupelo Street. The concept of a town architect is not a new one. Seaside's first town architect, Teofilo Victoria, was one of the original members of the Knight Crew. 
The night crew was made up of architects from the newly formed Duwani Platerzyberg Company, who would spend their evenings working on the seaside master plan. Because they gathered in the evening after working hours, they became known as the night crew. Legend has it that when the night crew was leaving Seaside to return to Miami after a town planning session, Teofilo was volunteered for the position as the first town architect when his backpack was thrown off the bus and he was left behind in Seaside. As Seaside has evolved, so too has the role of the town architect. No longer just a champion and interpreter of the master plan and town code, the role of the town architect now includes serving as the architect of record, educator, public space overseer, and advisor to other architects to help continue to shape the public realm and the character of Seaside. You should now be standing along Highway 30A at the intersection of Tupelo Street. Tupelo Street was the first street in Seaside. It was on this street that Robert and Darrell Davis built the first two houses in Seaside, and it was at the Tupelo Street break in the dune where Ernesto Buch designed and built the first Seaside Beach Pavilion. Ernesto Buch was one of Seaside's early town architects, and the Tupelo Street Pavilion was his first built project. This was also the first public pavilion to be built in Seaside. The simple and classical character is symbolic of early Seaside and helped to generate the town's image. Turn left onto Tupelo Street and begin to walk into the town of Seaside. As you walk down Tupelo Street, take note of the second house on your right, number 24. This was one of the two houses built in Seaside by Robert and Darrell Davis. Number 24, known as the Red House, served as the sales center in the early years of Seaside. As you continue walking into town, the house next door to the Red House, number 34 Tupelo Street, was the other house built by the Davises. This house, known as the Yellow House, served as their original residence in Seaside. The Davises have since moved on to a larger house on Seaside Avenue. These two houses represent the simple structures that Robert and Darrell Davis thought would be typical of the kind of homes that would be built in Seaside. But Seaside's popularity and prestige grew quickly, and with that popularity and prestige came higher property values and more elaborate structures. Continue walking along Tupelo Street and into the heart of Seaside. Directly in front of you is the Tupelo Street Gazebo. The Gazebo, along with the Red House, the Yellow House, and the Tupelo Street Beach Pavilion, were the first structures built at Seaside. The Gazebo and the Beach Pavilion were critical to help show the scale and proportion of the new town and to set an example of the character of the town to prospective buyers. And with its location in the center of the road, it is another example of a traffic calming device that slows vehicles as they pass through Seaside. Robert and Darrell Davis were married in the gazebo in 1983. 
As you approach the gazebo and Tupelo Street's intersection with West Grove Avenue, look to your right. The burnt orange-colored house at number 84 Tupelo Street is the Leon Cryer house. Leon Cryer was the architectural theorist whose lecture in Miami inspired Andres Duwani and Elizabeth Plater Zyberg to approach the design of Seaside as a design for a new town. In appreciation of Cryer's contribution, Robert Davis exchanged a building lot in Seaside for Leon Cryer's continued advice during the planning of the town. Cryer built this cottage, one of the first in Seaside with a tower, in 1985. It's a small house with large rooms. The bedroom is on the ground floor, with the great room on the floor above it. The house sits on a lot that is the highest point in Seaside, and was originally painted white. The new owners expanded the house and painted it the color you see today. Look beyond the house now and eastward down West Grove Avenue. This is an example of how the roads in Seaside were designed to continue into the neighboring towns. Here, West Grove Avenue in Seaside turns into West Grove Avenue in Seagrove Beach, just a block away. If the gazebo is not occupied, take a seat in the gazebo looking up Tupelo Street towards the Gulf of Mexico, or simply stand near the gazebo and look toward the Gulf. As your gaze follows Tupelo Street to the Gulf of Mexico, notice the width of the street. At Seaside, most streets are 18 feet wide, wide enough to let two cars pass each other, but narrow enough to demand a driver's attention as the cars pass, causing both drivers to slow down. And notice that there are no sidewalks on most of the streets in Seaside. During their two-year driving tour, the Davises noted that the best small towns didn't need sidewalks. You park your car and walk down the middle of the narrow street. And finally, note the distance of the houses from the street. The houses, each with a porch, which acts as an outdoor living room, are set close enough to the street to encourage conversation between those who happen to be walking and those relaxing on their front porch, yet are far enough from the street that the view of the beach pavilion in Dune is preserved. Look back now toward the Cryer House. The Cryer House sits upon a special type of building lot in Seaside known as a gateway lot. Gateway lots occur at locations which require some degree of acknowledgement as gateways or special places, and are one of the eight lot types outlined in the Seaside Code. The Seaside Code created the style guideline that every building in Seaside must follow. The code addresses building size and building material, and also establishes building setbacks, or how closely the building can be constructed to the front, rear, and side property lines. While every building in Seaside must adhere to the overall style guidelines set forth in the Seaside Code, each lot type has its own set of unique restrictions and requirements based on the lot's location and features. Let's continue our walking tour now by walking westward 
along West Grove Avenue toward the Seaside Center Square. Walk two blocks, crossing Savannah Street, and pausing when you arrive at East Ruskin Street. The Seaside Code differs from most building codes in that building uses are not strictly controlled, but rather are loosely determined by a conjunction of specific building forms and the building lot's location. For example, the majority of the building lots located along the north-south streets that terminate at a beach pavilion, Tupelo Street as an example, are known as Type 6 lots. This lot type allows for freestanding houses and encourages small outbuildings to the rear of the main building to become guest houses or rental units. The requirements for more substantial front yards for this lot type secure the view to the sea for the more inland lots along the street. Picket fences help to maintain the spatial section of the street. Lots in this category become slightly smaller toward the center of town for a gradual increase in density. Of the eight lot types outlined in the Seaside Code, three lot types are used primarily in and around the public areas, such as the lots surrounding the central square. Four lot types are used primarily in residential areas, such as those found along the north-south streets, the gateway lots that are located throughout the town, the lots along the inland east-west streets that we'll be visiting shortly, and the large lots that are located along Seaside Avenue, the town's Grand Boulevard. The final lot type, assigned to the beachfront lots that run along Highway 30A, presented a unique challenge at Seaside, one that we'll talk more about later in the tour. While many of the houses in Seaside have taken on a neoclassical style, this is not a requirement of the Seaside Code. The code simply addresses building material, building size and height, the building setbacks, and a few basic building features. Andres Duwani encouraged one of his employees, Walter Chatham, to push the code when designing Chatham's residence in Seaside. Duwani wanted Chatham to demonstrate the flexibility of the Seaside code in allowing for variation in design. Chatham had been given a building lot in Seaside by Robert Davis in exchange for his work on the town, and with the encouragement of Andres Dewani, designed and built his house located on East Ruskin Street. As you approach East Ruskin Street, you can see the very contemporary Chatham House on your left at 71 East Ruskin Street, on the corner of East Ruskin Street and West Grove Avenue. The Chatham House may be very different in appearance from most other houses in Seaside, but it is in complete compliance with the Seaside Code. At this point, you should have made your way along West Grove Avenue to East Ruskin Street. Turn slightly right here, a 45-degree turn, and continue along East Ruskin Street for half a block until you come to Seaside Avenue. Turn right onto Seaside Avenue and follow the avenue toward the northeast corner of the town, pausing when you arrive at Forest Street. Seaside Avenue is meant to be the grand residential boulevard of Seaside, 
with a median planting strip and sidewalks to highlight the street's importance. Each of the building lots along the avenue are of the type that permits large, freestanding buildings with substantial outbuildings at the rear. It was hoped that this lot type would contain private houses, small apartment buildings or bed and breakfast inns. The setbacks on all sides of the lot, together with the requirement of a continuous porch on the street front, result in buildings of some grandeur along this avenue. If you have noticed that every house in Seaside sits behind a white picket fence, you have witnessed the Seaside Code at work. Not only does the code require that every house include a white picket fence along the road and footpath, but it further stipulates that no two picket fences can be alike on the same street. So, while every home along Seaside Avenue has a fence, no two fences along the avenue are identical. This idea came directly from the notes that Robert and Darrell made during their two-year tour of small southern towns, and is a great example of how the Seaside Code allows for individual expression, while at the same time retaining the cohesiveness of design that promotes the overall character of the town. As you walk along Seaside Avenue and approach the avenue's intersection with Forest Street, directly in front of you and slightly obscured by the planting, is the coral-colored Seaside Avenue Pool Pavilion. The Seaside Avenue Pool Pavilion was designed by Derek Smith during his tenure as the Seaside Town Architect in 1983. The Pool Pavilion was originally painted white, as were most of the civic structures in Seaside. The idea that the civic structures in the town should be painted white changed after Robert and Darrell Davis attended an exhibition of watercolors. The exhibition illustrated that many revered public buildings were actually multicolored when they were built. The Davises were inspired by the exhibition to paint the Seaside Avenue Pool Pavilion the color it is today, much to the horror of architect Derek Smith. Beyond the Pool Pavilion, in the farthest northeast section of town, is the Seaside Tennis Club. In the earlier plans for Seaside, you are standing in the approximate location of the realigned Highway 30A. If the highway were realigned, the town center and shopping area of that version of Seaside would be located across the highway here, in the location that now holds the Seaside Tennis Club. By this point, you should have made your way along Seaside Avenue until its intersection with Forest Street. Turn left here onto Forest Street and continue the tour into the town. Forest Street makes a hard left turn in about 100 feet, and you should make that left turn and continue to walk along Forest Street, pausing at 499 Forest Street, a blue house with a pink door that will be on your left. Forest Street was named for the natural vegetation that was growing along this most inland of the town's 80 acres, and is a continuation of the existing Forest Street in the neighboring town of Seagrove Beach. The street is one of the few east-west oriented streets in Seaside, and as such there is no possibility of viewing the gulf from any of the lots along the street. The lots therefore were designed to be smaller, 
and less expensive than other lots in town. Since a view corridor along the street to the Gulf is unnecessary, the front setbacks of the lots along Forest Street are minimal. A near-zero setback, where the building sits almost directly on the property line, is permitted along one side of the yard, so houses along Forest Street tend to have private side yards rather than private rear yards, similar in fashion to the Charleston Single House, which is the prototypical home that would be developed here. Number 499 Forest Street is a perfect example of a Charleston Single House. Now continue walking along Forest Street. When you reach the point along Forest Street where the road is split in two by vegetation near 520 Forest Street, follow the street to the right of the planted median, moving along Forest Street in the direction of automobile traffic. Continue along Forest Street until you arrive at the Seaside Chapel. As you continue to walk along Forest Street, take note of the parking areas adjacent to the road. The spaces are not paved, but rather are made of porous gravel and oyster shells. This helps the land absorb water after rain and is an environmentally sound solution to deal with stormwater drainage. In fact, the roads in Seaside were originally planned to be unpaved completely, in keeping with the rural character that Robert and Darrell loved in many of the small towns that they visited. But early residents of Seaside realized that unpaved streets resulted in mud and sand being brought into their houses after a storm, and so they agreed to pave the roads in the sand-laid, brick-colored pavers you see today. The brick-colored pavers lend warmth to the street, invoke the nostalgia of old towns, and still allow for drainage through the sandy grout between each paver. In all, a perfect solution to the mud problem, and an example of how Seaside and the Seaside Code can change in response to the way residents actually live. As you continue to walk along Forest Street, you may see the tower of the Seaside Chapel rising above the tree line on your right. The lot on which the chapel sits had been designated from the beginning as the location for a house of worship. The design brief for the chapel required that the structure be created to serve all members of the community, accommodate 200 people, and have an architectural element that could be seen from a distance. In addition, it was to be constructed of materials that are characteristic of the region. The chapel that resulted from that brief was designed by Scott Merrill in 1999. In his design, Merrill opted to avoid iconic or architectural language traditionally associated with any particular faith. The building takes on the language of the region, with Borden-Batten construction reflecting a Carpenter-Gothic style. To accentuate the importance of the structure, its steeply pitched roof rises to 50 feet, making it the tallest building in all of Seaside. In addition, the bell tower soars even higher, to a final height of 68 feet. Merrill's design beautifully fulfills all of the design brief's requirements. By this point, you should have made your way along Forest Street to the Seaside Chapel. When you are standing directly in front of the door to the chapel, turn around and look back toward the center of town.
As we have walked through the town, you might have noticed the lack of lawn in anyone's yard. That is by design and is part of the Seaside Code. The only lawns permitted at Seaside are public, such as this piece of turf located in front of the Seaside Chapel. Beyond the lawn is Ruskin Place. The idea for Ruskin Place grew out of a suggestion made by Leon Cryer early in the development of the Seaside Master Plan. Cryer advanced the idea of creating a primary axis directly through the center of town. Beyond the perimeter of the building surrounding the central square, Ruskin Place would be a small town park, with buildings along either side that were designed for artists as spaces to live and work. The artist's studio and gallery would be on the ground floor, accessible to patrons walking along Ruskin Place, and the artist's living area would occupy the floors above. The Seaside Chapel would be located at the end of this main axis and would be clearly visible from the town square, acting as a focal point and drawing visitors into Ruskin Place and the artist colony located along the town's primary axis. This would give the chapel one of the most prominent locations in town. Of course, 30 years of growth of the trees in and along Ruskin Place have diminished the view of the chapel from the central square, but the natural growth of trees is beautiful in their own right. Turn right now and continue walking westward along Forest Street. Walk three blocks, passing Smolian Circle and Pensacola Street, and pausing when you arrive at Odessa Street. The trees of Ruskin Place are native to this area of Florida. In fact, every plant species used in Seaside is a native species. This is required by the Seaside Code. That part of the code was developed by Douglas Duwani, Andres Duwani's brother. Douglas approached his study of the native landscape of the Florida Panhandle in a way similar to the study that Robert and Darrell Davis made of small Florida towns. In his notes, he detailed not only the plant types that seem to thrive on the saltwater air and sandy soil, but he also studied the patterns of this plant life that occurred naturally. How close would individual examples of certain plants grow to each other? Which mixtures of plants naturally occurred? Which of those combinations looked most pleasing? Which native plants provided color, shade, Douglas distilled this information into the Seaside Code, which in turn requires that only native plants be used within Seaside, and also provides suggestions on how to use the plants. After Seaside, Douglas would earn a degree in landscape architecture from Harvard in 1990. The use of native plants seems obvious now, but at the time it was fairly groundbreaking. Using native plants is just one of the ways that the Seaside Plan shows respect for the environment. Native plants require no irrigation and little maintenance, and are naturally resistant to storms. Remember, the 80 acres of land that became Seaside were neither farmland nor pristine wilderness. There were no large trees, and the vegetation was brush and wild. So there was an opportunity to start from scratch here, 
and the best approach was to encourage native plants to return to their natural state. In addition to the use of native plants, the design of Seaside is environmentally sound. Today, the majority of the streets at Seaside run perpendicular to the shoreline, channeling the prevailing breezes. Most of the town's storm drainage flows into the central square, which is a depressed lawn area and acts as a retention pond, temporarily storing the stormwater until it can be slowly and naturally absorbed by the earth. The site plan protects the natural dunes along the shore. While a mandatory today, dune protection was a relatively new concept in the late 1970s. Houses are raised off the ground, allowing for cooling ventilation under the buildings. Metal roofs are resistant to hurricane force winds. And construction disturbance is limited to six feet beyond the building's footprint, thus preserving the natural land contours and existing vegetation. Collectively, these design elements help protect and preserve the environment. As we continue our tour, you'll notice that Seaside is a very walkable town. Thanks to their scale and design, the roads in the town feel more like very large sidewalks than streets. This was the goal of the designers, and is a reflection of the theory of successful towns that Leon Cryer and other prominent architectural theorists advanced in the 1970s. According to this theory, successful thriving towns have six characteristics. First, they are compact in size, with the optimum size being 80 acres, precisely the size of Seaside. They have public buildings and spaces. The land has a mix of uses. The town has a connected network of streets. There are transportation options, including walking, cycling, and cars. And finally, there is a discernible town center and edge. Duwani and Plater Zyberg did their best to incorporate these features into the master plan of Seaside. As you continue to walk westward on Forest Street and approach the intersection with Odessa Street, you'll see another example of piers marking the entrance to a more narrow section of Forest Street. The street becomes a one-way here, making a U-turn before directing traffic back into the direction of the town center. This is another example of how the piers act as a traffic calming device alerting the driver to slow down and take note of the change. By this point, you should have passed Smolian Circle and Pensacola Street and should be arriving at the intersection of Forest Street and Odessa Street. If you are not yet at this intersection, please pause the podcast and return to us when you are ready. If you look to your right, you'll see that Odessa Street almost continues through to the surrounding development of watercolor. While not open to vehicular traffic, there is a connection to the surrounding town for people. The streets in watercolor are wider, the houses are set back farther from the street, and there are sidewalks. A quick walk in watercolor 
has a completely different feel than a walk through seaside. We won't be going into watercolor on this walking tour, but you might want to take a look at that neighboring development on your own. You are welcome to pause the podcast, stroll into watercolor for a look, and then return here to rejoin the tour when you are ready. Let's continue the tour now by turning left onto Odessa Street and walking southward on Odessa Street toward the Gulf. Continue on Odessa Street for one block and pause when you come to Grayton Street. As you walk down Odessa Street, the West Pool and Pool Pavilion are on your right. The West Pool is the largest of Seaside's three pools with a waiting pool and a snack bar. In addition to the snack bar, Bud and Alley's Pizza Bar offers delivery service to this pool, so you can easily spend a relaxing resort day here. When you come to the next street, Grayton Street, make a right onto Grayton Street. Pause in front of the second house on your left, number 111 Grayton Street. In addition to providing the theory for the foundation of the master plan, and his suggestion to create Ruskin Place along the town's main axis, Leon Cryer made two additional suggestions. First, he encouraged that the civic buildings and public buildings of the town be distributed throughout the 80 acres. These buildings draw people to them, and therefore bring life to the areas in which they are located. This helps to explain why the pool pavilions and chapel are located away from the town center. Cryer's second suggestion was to create pedestrian walkways behind the buildings and away from the street. If you look to the right of 111 Grayton Street, you'll see an example of one of these walkways. Here at Seaside, these walkways are known as Cryer Walks, as a tribute to the man who suggested them. The five-foot-wide walks provide not only an alternative passage for pedestrians, but are also the location of the utilities that service the homes and buildings in Seaside. The buried utility lines keep the unsightly wires and pipes hidden from view and protect it from the elements. With utility lines buried beneath the crier walks, crews can access the lines for repairs or additions without having to excavate the street. Continue walking westward on Grayton Street until you come to the next street, Natchez Street. Turn left onto Natchez Street and pause when you arrive at number 31 on your right. In 1991, screenwriter Andrew Nichol completed a film script inspired by the Twilight Zone episode titled Special Service. Nickel rewrote his original script more than ten times on its way to becoming the paramount feature known as The Truman Show, directed by Peter Weir. The Truman Show chronicles the life of Truman Burbank, a man who is unaware that he is living in a constructed reality television show broadcast to billions of people around the world. Truman becomes suspicious of his perceived reality and embarks on a quest to discover the truth about his life. The original screenplay for The Truman Show 
had the story set in New York City. Director Weir thought that a resort town setting would more appropriately represent the kind of artificial reality you would see in a television show. Several locations were reviewed along the east coast of Florida, but when nothing suitable was located, Weir decided to use sound stages at Universal Studios Hollywood to represent Sea Haven, the fictional, picture-perfect hometown of Truman Burbank. But after Weir's wife read about Seaside in Architectural Digest magazine, she suggested that he reconsider the soundstage idea and visit the town. Once he saw Seaside, Weir decided immediately that this would be the perfect setting for the picture. Truman lived here, at number 31 Natchez Street, designed by architect Dan Cooper. Interestingly, the house is numbered 36 in the movie, and so both numbers appear here on the house at Seaside. The Truman Show was nominated for over 60 awards, winning more than 25. Let's continue walking southward on Natchez Street toward Highway 30A and the Gulf. Pause when you come to Highway 30A. As you walk toward the beach, the Natchez Street Beach Pavilion is directly in front of you. The pavilion was designed by Jersey Devil Architecture. In 1987, three architects from Jersey Devil Architecture visited Seaside over Memorial Day weekend and came up with the idea of using an umbrella as part of the design for their pavilion. Originally, the umbrella was to be made of wood, but they eventually decided on recycled aluminum. Aluminum is stronger and more durable than wood, while at the same time being more delicate. The concept was to have the umbrella be foldable and to retract the umbrella for storms. But instead, the final design has the umbrella as a permanent fixture, one that is built to withstand hurricane force winds. Turn left now onto Highway 30A and walk eastward along Highway 30A, crossing Odessa and Pensacola streets and pausing when you arrive at the 3rd Street, West Ruskin Street. As you walk, look across Highway 30A toward the water and the 2,300 feet of prime beachfront on the Gulf of Mexico. From the beginning, the land adjacent to the beach at Seaside presented a bit of a challenge to Robert Davis, Andres Diwani, and Elizabeth Plater Zyberg. Robert Davis remembered the lesson learned from his second development, Apogee, and was determined to move slowly with the development of Seaside. Well aware that these would be the most sought-after parcels of land in town, and therefore the most expensive parcels, he decided to defer the development of the land adjacent to the beach. While a small parcel of beachfront immediately opposite the central square has always been the site of markets, stores, and restaurants, the remaining beachside parcels were assigned a unique parcel type in the Seaside Code. The original code was completely silent on the requirements for this parcel type, save for labeling them as a special district, 
and stipulating that the designs for any buildings proposed for one of these parcels be approved by the municipal authority. Robert Davis always hoped that two small hotels would occupy at least a portion of the land adjacent to the Gulf. Early in the development of Seaside, prominent architect Robert A. M. Stern designed an incredible hotel structure that would be located both on a beachfront parcel and on a parcel of land adjacent to the Seaside Central Square, with a grand bridge linking the two hotel sections across Highway 30A and serving as a gateway to the town. Unfortunately, this idea was never realized. However, Stern did design a house at Seaside. That house is located on a lot adjacent to the West Ruskin Street Pavilion. In the late 1990s, Davis reconsidered the idea of constructing a hotel on the beach and received a proposal from a would-be hotel developer. After carefully considering the proposal, it was concluded that the beachfront parcels would be difficult places for the operations of a hotel. Further, the deferment of the development of the Gulf Front lots had resulted in the value of those lots rising to such a high level that the revenue from their sale as single-family parcels would far outweigh the revenue from any other use. Although there is no grand waterside hotel along the beach at Seaside, perhaps some of the larger houses that have been built along the shore will someday become bed-and-breakfast inns or small boutique hotels. Since the Seaside Code is built on building style rather than usage, it allows for such conversions. In the meantime, many of the houses in Seaside are available to rent by the night. In addition, the Watercolor Inn is located on the beach in the adjacent town of Watercolor and is just a 10-minute walk along Highway 30A from the Seaside Post Office. The Watercolor Inn is a deluxe boutique hotel and is well worth the visit. As you approach West Ruskin Street, look across Highway 30A toward the Gulf. The West Ruskin Street Beach Pavilion designed by Michael McDonough, announces the break in the dune and signals access to the beach. Immediately to the left of the pavilion is the residence design by architect Robert A. M. Stern. Turn left now onto West Ruskin Street and walk northward into the town of Seaside. West Ruskin Street bears to the right after half a block. Follow the street as it makes this right turn until you arrive at Smolian Circle. Robert Davis's grandparents, J.S. and Bertha Smolian, were steadfast supporters of education and had demonstrated their support through philanthropic gifts to the University of Alabama in Birmingham since the early 1950s. Partnering with the university, the Smolians developed plans and a business model to create a faculty retreat and small meeting center on a few acres of land that would later become part of Seaside. Although this plan never materialized, Robert Davis made it clear from the outset that he wanted to honor his grandparents' dream 
by dedicating a portion of the land at Seaside to education. And so, from the earliest plans of Seaside, the Lyceum was at the heart of the town. A Lyceum is an institution for popular education, providing discussions, lectures, concerts, etc. There have been many plans for the Lyceum at Seaside, and this is one of the last remaining portions of the town to be fully developed. What has been created on the Lyceum grounds is the Seaside Neighborhood School, accepting students from Seaside and neighboring towns from the 6th through the ninth grades. The building that you see as you approach Smolian Circle, number 42, is part of the Seaside Neighborhood School. On the other side of the school is the horseshoe-shaped lawn of the Lyceum grounds. At this point, you should be standing at the intersection of West Ruskin Street and Smolian Circle. Turn right onto Smolian Circle and start walking toward the Seaside Center Square. In one block, Quincy Circle intersects Smolian Circle. Turn right onto Quincy Circle and continue along Quincy Circle, pausing when you arrive at Highway 30A. While the Lyceum has yet to be fully developed into the center of education that the town's founders envisioned, something much more important has happened since the birth of Seaside in 1981. The entire town of Seaside has become a catalyst for education in the fields of urban planning, design, and community development. Some have lamented that Seaside is not the real town that the creators had hoped it would be, but rather a resort town populated with visitors instead of residents. While it's true that Seaside has only a handful of year-round residents, the very nature of a town that is populated by visitors means that the lessons learned at Seaside can be carried back to towns and villages around the world. The people behind Seaside and the lessons learned from the town's creation led to the development of the New Urbanism Movement. New Urbanism promotes walkable neighborhoods that include a range of housing and land use types. New Urbanism advocates the development of communities designed for pedestrians as well as cars, where urban spaces are framed by architecture and landscape design that celebrate local history, climate, and ecology. The movement solidified when the Congress for the New Urbanism was founded in 1993 by many of the people involved with Seaside. In addition to the works of the Congress for the New Urbanism, the Seaside Institute offers programs to promote the ideas behind the town of Seaside. The Institute's work advances the goal of promoting education that J.S. and Bertha Smolian dreamed would be an integral part of the use of the land that they purchased on the Gulf Coast. Today, the town of Seaside stands as a testament to that dream, and is proof that the right combination of extraordinary people can accomplish extraordinary things. By this point, you should have walked along Quincy Circle and should now be standing at the intersection of Quincy Circle and Highway 30A. Turn left 
onto Highway 30A and walk eastward toward the Seaside Post Office. When you arrive at the post office, find a seat along the amphitheater where you can relax, and I'll share a few more things with you as our tour comes to an end. It has taken more than 30 years for Seaside to grow from a single street with two houses to the town you see today. But what about tomorrow? What does the future hold for Seaside? The Lyceum is the largest part of the original master plan that is yet to be fully developed. The idea that this was such a critical part of the history of the town, and is clearly one of the goals of its founder, assures that we'll continue to see this area grow into the center of education for the town and the area. We are also likely to see more development in the Seaside Center Square. Most plans for the town would relocate the Seaside Post Office building to an area near the Lyceum, and a tower would stand in the location now occupied by the post office. Additional plantings in a small architectural arcade would run parallel to Highway 30A, making for a more intimate central square and helping to buffer the highway. The tower, usually referred to as the Crier Tower, would become the centerpiece of the town and would be the visual focal point from which the three main axes of the town begin. Coincidentally, the size and proportion of the seaside center square is very similar to the size and proportion of the Piazza del Campo in Siena, Italy, site of the famous Palio horse race every year. The Piazza del Campo has a bell tower similarly located at the beginning of the axes that run through the square. The beachfront property across Highway 30A from Center Square could see some changes too. The perspicacity marketplace may change, and there is a chance that a small hotel may yet be built on Gulf Front land. Or perhaps none of this will happen. Seaside is a living town and is subject to the will of its homeowners, the vision of its founders, and the stresses of the market. But what a glorious town it is. While I have used many references to create this tour, none has proven to be as invaluable as Dairu Thadani's book entitled Visions of Seaside. My interest in architecture and design has led to the creation of a fairly substantial library of books on those subjects, and nothing in that library compares with Thadani's book on Seaside. You can access a complete bibliography for this tour, as well as a link to purchase Visions of Seaside from Amazon.com on the Square Feet Tours website. Thanks for joining us on our tour of the town of Seaside. The music that you've been hearing during this tour is from the song Chills, off of the album Eventide by the band Grey Eye Glances. You can download the song from iTunes or purchase the CD from Amazon.com through the links on the Square Feet Tours website. 
It's my favorite Grey Eye Glances song. So I thought I'd play it for you here in its entirety. I hope you enjoy it. Moment again, holding firm. 
Square Feet Tours, Enriching Your Journey.